You're listening to ReachMD, and this is GI Insights, produced in partnership with the American Gastroenterological Association, the AGA. I'm your host, Dr. Barry Menon, and with me today is Dr. Linda Rabinick, MD, VP, Prevention and Cancer Control, Cancer Care, Ontario, Canada, Professor of Medicine and Health Policy Management and Evaluation, University of Toronto. Our topic today is screening and surveillance for colorectal cancer. Welcome, Dr. Rabinick. Thank you very much, Barry. So to start off, I'd like to find out from you, what are the top issues uh, globally in colorectal cancer screening uh, um, for patients? Yes. So uh, if you look at a global perspective, there are areas of the world uh, where uh, the burden of disease has reached a certain level such that screening is needed. And Canada and the U.S. are good examples of that. Uh, Europe uh, and also New Zealand and Australia, for example. In Asia now, the burden of disease is rising. And the Asian countries like Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, they're screening as well. There are other areas of the world where the burden of disease is rising, but it hasn't reached the, the level that it has in the countries I just mentioned. But for those countries, it's time to start thinking about it, it's time to start planning for it. Is this a, mainly an economic issue in terms of how efficient screening is versus how many patients we're going to pick up? Well, uh, it turns out that um, those countries that... Uh, were low resource and are becoming higher resource, higher income, uh, they tend to adopt in that process a more Western lifestyle, a more Western diet. And as that happens, it turns out that their burden of disease rises. So they have to then start to worry about it. On the other hand, they have the resources to start to worry about it. So it's an interesting situation uh, where we have countries that are making this economic transition they're making this transition in the rise in burden of colorectal uh, cancer. And so then it's time for them to start worrying about and planning for screening. So we, if you look around the world, it's a mixture of countries that are you know, have established programs now for several years, maybe a decade in some cases, and countries that are just getting it off the ground. And other countries where, uh, I'll give Russia as one example, where... Uh, it really is time to start planning and starting to figure out how to introduce more widespread screening. And the screening that the countries are introducing are colonoscopy? It depends on the country. It depends on the country. Many countries are starting with a less uh, intense, less invasive test, non-endoscopic test, and they're starting with stool testing uh, because, as we know, colonoscopy is the final common pathway uh, for uh, a less invasive test. And so in many jurisdictions, the colonoscopy resource is not unlimited, so that starting with a stool-based te test is a good idea, and then those with a positive stool test go on and have a colonoscopy. Instead of colonoscopy for everybody, it, it isn't feasible in many jurisdictions. I see. That makes sense. And in terms of doing more globally in screening, what are the main obstacles that you see? Yes. Well, uh, for those um, 
countries that are undergoing that economic transition that I mentioned, there it's making the case to government, making the case to the payers of health care, uh, that now's the time to start to invest in this. There are leading uh, experts in the area who can help with this, but you really need an investment of public dollars there to really move it along in those countries. In other countries like the U.S., Canada, England, the Netherlands, there's really a focus on the quality of colonoscopy because even if colonoscopy is the first test, like it tends to be preferred in this country, or if it's a stool test like the fecal immunochemical test in the Netherlands, you need to have high-quality colonoscopy regardless of which test you're going with. I see. What, where does a CT fit in, non-invasive? Does that... I think CT colonography, it's finding its way. Um, there is evidence that for detecting larger lesions, uh, you know, uh, polyp one centimeter or greater, or cancers, um, it's a reasonable, uh, it's, it has a reasonable performance compared with colonoscopy. It's probably not as good for detecting flat lesions, and now there's quite an emphasis on flat lesions, mm -hmm. and the evidence so far is showing it's not as good at detecting flat lesions, so there is a uh, something to be worked out there. But I would say that uh, if it's available uh, it, and if it's more appealing to some people to have a CT colonography compared with another test, if it brings people off the sidelines, in other words, into screening, then why not endorse it? Of course. And could you speak a little bit about the specificity and sensitivity of the DNA-based uh, stool yes. exams. Yes. So uh, the new uh, stool DNA test that uh, was approved in this country um, uh, was uh, shown in a, in a very large study to have um, better ability to detect um, cancers and advanced adenomas, so the precancerous, the precancerous lesion that we worry about, better ability to detect those lesions than other uh, other stool test. So um, I think on that basis, uh, it, it was a, it was approved uh, by the FDA uh, as an alternative. You know, as an option. Um, it's not likely to replace colonoscopy. I think uh, it, we're yet to see what its role is going to be. But um, you know, for those tests that have a reasonable performance, and we can characterize it. If it helps bring people off the sideline who wouldn't otherwise get screened, uh, it's likely to offer something in terms of raising participation. People that might have a family history but for whatever reason do not want to get a colonoscopy. Right. For those people, it would be right. very helpful. Right. Is it now being used uh, in this country for more high-risk people rather than a mm -hmm. general screening? How are the physicians using it? I'm not sure uh, if we have uh, detailed information on how it's being used currently. Um, you know, there is the fecal immunochemical test, or the FIT, uh, which is a good test. It's being implemented, for instance, in the Netherlands and, uh, and uh, other uh, jurisdictions. And one of the open questions is how the stool DNA test would compare with the fecal immunochemical test, for example. We don't know that. We don't know that at the moment. So uh, right now it's, it's, it's available. Uh, and uh, and uh, presumably it will will be um, used more than it has been in the past. But the gold standard will continue to be colonoscopy 
as far as you can tell in the foreseeable future? Yes, especially for those with a positive non-invasive test. So if you have a positive non-invasive test, you have to go on to the next step and figure out is it, what is it? Is it an advanced adenoma, is it a cancer, or is it nothing to worry about? And for that, today it's colonoscopy, it's direct visualization of the colon, and then if you see something, you biopsy it or remove it. So until we can think of some other way of doing that, uh, I think for the foreseeable, uh, it will be the, uh, the, the test, that, the definitive test. So that's why there's so much focus on making it as high a quality as we can. I think that raising the bar and making it as high quality as we can, and then instead of, I would say, my own view, screening people at average risk with colonoscopy as the first test, if we could better focus that colonoscopy on people who are most likely to have something and need to have a biopsy or, or something removed, that would be even better use of that resource. So I think we're going to see more focus on that area as in parallel with focus on raising the quality of colonoscopy, maybe as good as we can, and then figuring out better how we can stream people to colonoscopy that really are going to benefit. Of course. Yeah. Any final words that you'd like to leave your colleagues with uh, about the issue of colorectal cancer screening? Well, I think that uh, what's very exciting in the field is as we've started to implement screening, we've learned a lot about the performance of our tests, colonoscopy, for example. We know that today it's not as effective in the right side of the colon that it is in the left, the rectum and the left side of the colon. So that spurred on a whole new field of research, focusing firstly on quality, as we mentioned, but also figuring out what's different about those lesions on the right side of the colon. We're, we're finally coming to the conclusion that uh, all colorectal cancers aren't equal and there's something different about the molecular pathway that's, that underlies the right-sided lesions. It's a different pathway we, for the most part than this traditional pathway for the other ones on the left side. Well, if I may, the right side gets more raw chemicals. Yes. Yes. And the, then, then the left, does that yeah. have, might have anything to do with it? Well, people have wondered about that. Uh, it's more fluid. There are more bile salts there. People have wondered if it's the composition of the contents. Uh, it's just not clear, but it's given rise to a whole new field of research and focus and, and tremendous interest in what is it that's different about the right side, why are the lesions of a different nature, and and probably we're missing them more than we realized. Interesting, it's one of those moments in science where you look at the data yeah. and you say, hmm, that's funny, why is it right different than the left? Yeah. And that's where the insights yeah. follow after yeah. research. Yeah. Well, Dr. Rabinek, it's been great, uh, terrific uh, information. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Barry Menon and joining me is Dr. Chris Cowdley, director Liver Care Network and Organ Care Research at the Swedish Medical Center in Seattle. Welcome, Dr. Cowdley. Thank you. I understand you gave several presentations and, and ran a symposium, and uh, I know that you're a hepatologist and liver disease is your specialty, so I'd love for you to uh, summarize some of the key takeaways for our practitioners. Thank you for having me on the show. The uh, recognition of liver disease as a major contributor to overall mortality and cancer-related death is growing. 
So liver cancer is now one of the fastest growing causes of cancer death, particularly in men. Um, as the hepatitis C epidemic, of which a large number of patients were exposed in the 1970s and 1960s, reaches its natural conclusion, we're seeing huge numbers of patients developing cirrhosis, end-stage liver disease, and liver cancer. On top of that, we now have a burgeoning epidemic of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is associated with diabetes, hypertension, and metabolic syndrome, which are rampant in our society, and may affect as much as 20 to 30% of the U.S. population. And 3 to 5% of this population, which just amounts to almost 3 to 5 million Americans, may have a condition called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, a more serious form of fatty liver disease that may go on to develop cancer and end-stage cirrhosis. And we're seeing that in younger patients these days, aren't we? Exactly. In fact, as you know, the fastest-growing population with type 2 diabetes are people under 18 years of age. And this undoubtedly is due to many factors, including nutrition, diet, exercise, portion size, etc. And we are seeing associated with this an increased need for liver transplantation in this population. And non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is now the second leading cause for liver transplantation. So liver disease is growing as a huge factor in population health at the present time. Uh, talk a little bit, if you would, about Hep C and the baby boomers, the recommendations, and, and whether these recommendations are being followed through. Thank you for asking this question because it's very timely and appropriate. The CDC has recommended that all individuals who are born between 1945 and 1965 uh, receive at least a one-time screen for hepatitis C, given that 85% of the population of maybe 1.5 to 3 million Americans with hepatitis C are in this age group. We also know that the U.S. Preventive Health Task Force gave screening for hepatitis B a grade of B, which was increased based on the dramatic efficacy and therapeutic benefit of the new hepatitis C treatment, which can achieve cures in over 95% of patients with as little as eight weeks of treatment. And of course, the important point to emphasize is the majority of patients with hepatitis C are not aware of their diagnosis. So it is important for the general practitioner and in fact, all physicians and healthcare providers to ask the patient, have they been tested? And if not, consider asking them to be tested. Furthermore, if they have risk factors, such as a prior history of blood transfusion, tattoos, or any experience with intravenous drugs, even in the remote past, these patients are at higher risk and should be treated as are recipients of organ transplantation and those who are immunosuppressed or on hemodialysis. Excellent. And I'd like to just finish up with a question about iron storage diseases that certainly affect the liver and are part of your expertise. What is some late information that you can uh, uh, help our audience understand? So the development of research in iron disorders has been at a very fast pace and really summarizes and epitomizes what we are reaching in terms of personalized medicine. 
So we are now recognizing that although the vast majority of patients with iron overload are in fact not diagnosed with appropriate testing until way too late, many patients who may have the various genetic patterns associated with hemochromatosis may actually not have iron overload and in fact may have other genes that have a protective effect. So it's a type of personalized medicine that we're approaching as we're recognizing that some patients may carry the genetic trait for hemochromatosis but not express the disease. Other patients may have the disease but may not be aware of it. So understanding the role of screening tests using serum iron, transferrin saturation, and ferritin, and understanding the use of commonly available genetic testing is really important for any practitioner to be familiar with. So the phenotype might not always go along with the genotype here. That's exactly right. Early studies suggested that most patients with hemochromatosis presented with bronze diabetes and cirrhosis and liver cancer. And of course, it's like any other disease as there's growing awareness, widespread screening, we start seeing patients with a heterogeneous, variable phenotypic expression. Then when you identify a gene for a disease, then you start testing people for the genetic mutation, and you uncover the fact that many patients may have the mutation but may not express the disease. And this is part of the evolution of our understanding between genotype and phenotype, as you very well put it, uh, that's driving advances in medicine. Thank you so much, Dr. Cowdley. Thank you, Barry. Pleasure was all mine. I'm Dr. Barry Menon, and you've been listening to GI Insights, produced in partnership with the AGA on ReachMD. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com AGA, featuring podcasts of this and other series. Thank you for listening.